Well, good morning. My name is Rick Morris. My wife and I have been attending LifePoint Delaware for the last five and a half years. We helped to lead one of the life groups here. I've had the privilege of speaking here and elsewhere a number of times in the past, and I have that privilege this morning. I'm your closer. We are finishing the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're talking about the conclusion this morning. This is Solomon as an aging man giving advice to a younger generation about not making the same mistakes that he's made. He's been analyzing the world from the vantage point of under the sun, as you know, for the past eight, nine long weeks, looking at everything the human mind can perceive apart from God at what provides meaning and purpose and satisfaction in this life and the conclusion you could repeat with me if you want, over and over and over again has been everything is meaningless. Nothing satisfies in any lasting sense. Any satisfaction we get is only temporary and normally we need more and more of that thing to get less and less of it as we go. And then we all grow old and die. And it's the same fate for all of us, whether we lived wisely as, or as a fool. And no matter how big a sandcastle you built in this life, death will come along as surely as the tide and level it. You can't take it with you. You can't do anything about what happens to it after you're gone. And sooner or later, both it and you will be forgotten. There used to be a bumper sticker when I was younger that said, life is hard and then you die. And that is a really good summary of the last 11 chapters of Ecclesiastes and a good summary of the first eight verses of chapter 12, which we're in today. It does get better, but we've got one more bit of depressing thought to trudge through before we get there. Look at this. Here's how he starts the chapter. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun, light, moon, stars are darkened, clouds return after the rain, the day when the watchmen of the house tremble, mighty men stoop, grinding ones stand idle because they're few, those who look through windows grow dim, the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low, one will arise at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place, terrors on the road, almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, the caperberry is ineffective. That's the life is hard part. Here's the and then you die part. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Remember him before the silver cord's broken, the golden bowl's crushed, the pitcher by the well is shattered, the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. And one last time, vanity of vanity, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless, says the preacher. So to the young, he says, remember your creator before these days come. And then all those poetic terms are to detail the stark realities of aging, hearing loss, dimming sight, difficulty with movement, fear of falling, and he summarizes it all by saying, these are the days when you will say, I have no delight in them, and everything is meaningless. And I am not going to minimize the hardships of aging. I've seen the pain of it in my own family. I've seen it in other families' lives. 
Just a week and a half ago, I attended yet another funeral. More of those than weddings these days. But the conclusion that he's reached over and over and over again in this book is not inevitable. Life does not need to be meaningless. I've I know a lot of people whose lives are full of meaning and purpose, and it doesn't need to end the way he describes here. I've known folks whose end-of-life circumstances have been every bit as difficult as what, he, of what, as what he describes, sometimes maybe more, who very much had delight in them. The outlook's bleak if we're looking for meaning and purpose under the sun, only from what this broken world has to offer. But the big idea of this series has been all along that God offers a full life in an empty world. If God's in the picture, it changes everything. Solomon knew that at the beginning of his reign. He comes back to it at the end. And I want to summarize the book of Ecclesiastes by looking at a few aspects of his reign. There were positive aspects and negative. He started out really well. He took a detour. I'm hoping we can learn from those lessons. He was the successor to the throne of Israel. His father, David, was just a living legend. He was a musician, a poet, a warrior, Israel's most acclaimed king. And more than anything, he's referred to both in the Old Testament and the New as a man after God's own heart. He was a a living legend, and Solomon is now going to be the follow-up act to a living legend. As we look in the book of 1 Kings, as it starts, David's nearing the end of his life. So Solomon's going to take the throne, and he's barely 20 years old. He starts out really well. He approaches God in a big way. He offers a thousand burnt offerings to God, and God responds. Basically, by giving him a blank check, he says, ask me what you want me to give you. In a, in a sense, it's a test. What's most important to you right now? He could have asked for anything. He could have asked for wealth, long life, protection from enemies. Here's what he asks. I love this passage. Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm just a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. I'm in the midst of your people. You've chosen a great people, too many to be counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people. Give me what I need to serve you well. For who's able to judge this great people of yours? He doesn't ask for power or protection or wealth. He asks for a discerning heart. And God is really pleased with that. God says, because you've asked for this thing and not the others, I've given you what you've asked. I've given you such a wise heart that there's been no one like you before you, and there will never be one like you after. And I've also given you what you did not ask for, wealth and honor, so that there will be no king like you all your days. And God did what he said. He highly exalted Solomon with royal majesty that was just unmatched, because that's the way God is, loving beyond our ability to comprehend faithful to keep his word, and able to provide light years beyond what we could even think to ask for. Solomon started out really well. One of his crowning accomplishments near the beginning of his reign was to build a magnificent temple for the Lord. It took him seven years to build it, 150,000 workers. 
And his words at the dedication to that temple are some of the sweetest in Scripture. It shows a keen understanding of God. And he closes that by urging his people to let your heart be wholly devoted to the Lord. Serve him, follow him, keep his commandments. And he asked God, let all the nations of the earth know that you are God and that there is no one else. He started out so well. But good beginnings don't necessarily guarantee good endings. As you read the account of his life, the accolades are interspersed with words like accept and but. And over time, he leans less and less on the Lord and more and more on doing things his own way. He was promised riches, but he was never satisfied. And his desire for personal gratification led to overtaxing his people and forced labor that wore them down. He sought to establish God's kingdom, but he was also preoccupied with his own. It took him seven years to build that temple. You know how long it took him to build his own house? Thirteen. Almost twice as long. He wanted the kingdom of God, but he lacked the faith and obedience to do it God's way. For example, hundreds of years before kings took the throne, God had given commands to the kings of what they should and should not do. And among those commands were three prohibitions. Don't multiply horses, that was for military strength. Don't greatly increase silver and gold, that was for economic strength. And don't multiply wives for yourself, and that was for political strength, by forging alliances with other nations, marrying the daughter of another king, and raising your nation's position on the world stage. God wanted the king to rely on him, not on military power or riches or political alliances, so that all the world would know that he is God and that there is no other, just like Solomon wanted. And he had another reason regarding those marriages. He said, the foreign nations around you serve false gods and idols, and some of the worship of those idols included some of the most horrendous practices, up to and including child sacrifice. And so God says, I'm forbidding the nation and especially the king for intermarrying with those nations because when those spouses come into Israel, they will bring their false gods and God warns them they will turn your heart away. And Solomon violated all three of those prohibitions. The number of horse stalls he built was in the tens of thousands. He was given wealth, but like I said, he was never satisfied. He brought in so much gold that we're told that silver was viewed as not even valuable. The Bible says it was viewed as stones. And talk about multiplying spouses. We've talked about that before. 700 wives. Let that sink in. 300 concubines because, you know, 700 wives just isn't enough. And his wives turned his heart away, just like God said. By the end of his reign, he was not only tolerating those false religions, he actually went after those false gods. He was actually building high places of worship to them, including the ones with the most detestable worship practice. The final statement in Scripture about Solomon is sad. It's in 1 Kings 11, and here's how the Chronicle sums up his reign. He says, when Solomon was old... His wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father 
David had been. That word heart shows up three times in that passage. It wasn't a problem with ability. It was with a divided heart. And God was angry about that because Solomon had turned his heart away. Because he had gone after foreign gods after God had warned him multiple times not to do that. And God said, because you've done this and haven't kept my covenant, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. And even when he was confronted by God, he didn't repent, he didn't change his mind, he didn't ask forgiveness and get back on the path. He dug his heels in and actually tried to kill the one that God had chosen to replace him. Ironically, that's exactly what the first king of Israel, Saul, tried to do to his own father, David. History was repeating itself. It's hard to believe this is even the same guy. How do you get here? How do you start so well and end so poorly? And if he's the wisest man who ever lived, what hope is there for any of us to avoid making the same mistakes? Well, there is hope. Part of it is understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. It's basically Solomon's diary. It's a record of his pursuits. We can learn from them. I think we're supposed to. The Christian life is compared to a race in Scripture. It is not a sprint. It's a long-distance run. We are in it for life. Look at this passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. There's a couple principles in here. If we can just get this much down, it'll take us a very long way. Speaking of that race, he says, since we've got such a great cloud of witnesses around us, let's lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I want to zero in on the middle of that passage. Here's the first principle. He says, run with endurance the race, fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's talking about focus. When you're going to run a race, you need to focus. I'm not a long-distance runner, but I have consulted some who are, and they confirmed my suspicion that when you're running a race, if you allow yourself to be distracted by every shiny object along the path, it will not serve you well. So you're running this race. And boy, I'm getting tired. And oh, look at that billboard. I can have a rich and robust cup of coffee without the bitter aftertaste. And that guy's taking a picture. I need to hold my stomach in. I think that cute person over there is waving at me. I wonder if Donato's is open when this thing is done. That's not going to serve you well. I heard this same principle in a business meeting once. We went to a seminar about how a business can be made successful. And the guy said, one of the first things a business needs to do is create a mission statement. What is the main thing? What are we aiming for beyond anything else? What determines our success? And then every decision we make is going to be assessed in terms of whether it takes us closer to or farther away from that mission statement. And the guy made a good point. He said, that's not just a good idea for a business. It's a good idea in life. What's the mission statement of your life? What is it that you want to accomplish more than anything else? Someone once asked Christ what the main thing is when they said, teacher, what's the greatest commandment of all? And a lot of you know what he said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Elsewhere he said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the other things in life that are important will line up <clears throat> after that goal. 
Solomon knew that main thing at the beginning. Remember what he said to his people, let your heart be wholly devoted to the Lord, to serve him, keep his commandments. He lost track of it. But finally, here's some good news. He comes back to it at the end. He gives the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes in the last couple verses of chapter 12. And it's not the conclusion you'd expect. Over and over, he said, life is meaningless. So, in conclusion, life is meaningless. Solomon out. That's not what he says. He says something very different. He says here in verse 13, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God. Keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything that's hidden, whether it's good or evil. First off, praise God. He comes back to his moorings. He comes back to God himself. That fear God and keep his commandments sounds like let your heart be wholly devoted to the Lord and walk with him. Do what he says. When he says fear, he's not talking about terror of some unrighteous tyrant who's going to make you pay if you don't do what he wants. He's talking about a proper love response of obedience and respect and reverence to an all-powerful God who loves us, but who also is holy and just and righteous and doesn't mess around with sin. And so he says, fear God and obey him. And here's what I don't want you to miss. This conclusion is completely different than the 11 and 9 tenths chapters that we've read up till now. Under the sun, if we're only looking at this life and temporal things and trying to find meaning and purpose in those, he's right. Everything's meaningless. It's chasing after wind. It's running around digging holes looking for treasure that's not there. But if God's in the picture, and if every act is going to be judged, whether it's good or evil, is it not true that it's just the opposite that's the case? It's not that life is meaningless. It's that everything in life has meaning. It's completely different. So on the one side, choosing to do things that are wrong, knowing the right thing and not doing it, James 4 says that's the definition of sin. Those things will have consequences because God's going to bring every act to judgment whether it's good or evil, even the things that are hidden. That's good news because justice will one day be done and it will be seen to be done and evil won't fall through the cracks like it sometimes does in our own system. When he does it, it will be done perfectly. The problem is we all have things that are hidden that we've done that are wrong. We all have a debt to pay and God can't turn his back on those things any more than a judge could do that in a murder trial. If he's just, they must be paid. And that's the whole point of the gospel message. All of the Bible points to that. Even the passage we just read, Christ endured the cross, despising the shame. God loves us and wants a relationship with us, but sin needs to be paid for. And so he sent his son to live a perfect life, the life we were intended to live. And then he offered to go to the cross with his life without sin, to pay for our lives which have sin so that we don't have to. He offers forgiveness. And those things are significant. They have consequences. That's why we need Christ. And here's the other part I don't want you to miss. The good is also important. When good things are done, those have consequences also. 
when we serve God, when we walk with him, when we obey him, when we keep his, his commandments, those will be judged too. Even the things that are hidden that people don't see. And that's where the meaning and the purpose comes from that was missing in the other 11 chapters. Let me give a quick example here. When I was a younger Christian, we used to lead a Bible study. I co-led it with some other folks. And oftentimes, we'd have guests that came, and we would talk to them afterwards if they had questions, wanted to learn more. And one time this guy came, he really intimidated me. I, I mean, I found out later he was a truck driver for ODOT, and he every bit looked the stereotype part. I mean, he was built like a tree trunk. He was burly and strong, and he had this beard, and he had these eyes that were not smiling, and there was no smile found anywhere else on his face either. And he, it was like there was a force field around him. It was really hard to read, other than you've got the impression if you talk to him, it might be unpleasant. And my choice at that point, I decided that God's will was for somebody else to talk to him that night. And I would have followed through on that plan if the woman that invited him hadn't come up to me and said, go talk to that guy. And it's like, me? Yeah, talk to him. Tell him about Christ. That's why he's here. And I'm like scanning my brains. God, there's got to be a reason that I can save face and get out of this. And God wasn't helping me at all. <laughs> and, and I say that to say I am not the hero in this, in this story. I would have chickened out. But I had no, I had no exit door. And so I did it. I went and talked to him best I could. I found out later, the next day, he accepted Christ into his heart. Behind the wheel of his ODOT truck, with tears streaming down his face. He even remembered the underpass on 315 where it happened, and I was told by his wife that later on, whenever the family was driving there, he would always point it out to his kids. That's where I gave my heart to Christ. And his life began to change. And he ended up becoming a leader with the rest of us, helping other people to find that path. He married the woman that invited him. And they had kids. And they all gave their lives to Christ. And interestingly enough, some of those kids became best friends with some of our kids. And the ripples just keep moving out. Where there was one person, now there's a whole family sharing the message of Christ. That guy went to be with the Lord two years ago. Complications from COVID. Another funeral. But he's in heaven. And I will see him again. And I will not be intimidated by that conversation. I will seek it out if I have any say in it. I am looking forward to it. Christ said you can have treasure in heaven and meaning and purpose in this life. God is the only one who offers a full life in an empty world. So choose the path that leads to life. That's the first principle. If you haven't, make Christ the main thing. Stop digging for treasure in empty holes and take the one that he's reaching out and trying to hand you. Forgiveness and life and purpose. That's the first principle. The second one in that business class was once you know the mission statement, he said, the main thing is keeping the main thing the main thing, which is not as easy as it sounds because there's so many things that can trip us up 
or slow us down. Look back at that passage in Hebrews again, because that, that principle is here too. He says, let's lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus is priority number one. Running with endurance means keep him priority one. Run towards him and keep running. Lay aside the encumbrances and the sin. He says, don't run with a backpack full of stuff and your shoelaces untied. Get rid of the things that weigh you down and trip you up. And this is the part that Solomon messed up. He got the first part right. But he had the main thing and other things got in the way. Some of those things were the sin that so easily entangles us. Some of those things were expressly forbidden by God, and God warned him, and he wouldn't listen. He was wise. But it's possible to be wise and do really foolish things. Wisdom is a stewardship. It's a gift from God. It can be used for good or really sophisticated evil, depending on what your choices are and how to use it. And his choices stole his heart away from his first love. So, let me say this gently but firmly. If you're here wanting to be in the race with God and you've got things in your life that you know he has said are wrong, learn the lesson from Solomon. You need to stop. You need to repent. That means change direction. It means make a U-turn. It means you're headed to Dayton and you just saw a sign that says, welcome to Pennsylvania. You need to turn around. Renounce those things. Get help if you need to, but it starts with a prayer. One, one, this is like a modern-day parable, and I think it's so appropriate here. One guy said this, he who wants to keep his garden tidy does not reserve a plot for weeds. In the best case, if you do that, reserve a plot for weeds in your garden, it's going to take room away from things that are more useful. And in the worst case, they can spread and choke out the very things that you're trying to cultivate. Give God your whole heart, not 80% of it and holding something aside that you don't want to let go of. It can steal your heart away. That's what happened to Solomon. But here's the other part of that. The encumbrances. Some of the things that messed Solomon up were not forbidden. They were morally neutral. Some of them were actually God's gifts that God had given him to enjoy. Wealth and honor, for example. But he began pursuing those things in ways that went out of bounds. Actually, he began pursuing those things rather than the one who gave them to him. He started pursuing the gifts more than the giver. And this is tricky. With things that are forbidden, unless your heart is really calloused, at least you know you're doing something wrong. When you're pursuing something that's actually good, but pursuing it in a way that's out of bounds, your heart can be stolen away from your first love, and you don't even realize it's happening. An idol is a false god. It can be made of wood or stone. Or it can be anything or anyone 
that competes for the allegiance that's owed to God alone. Even good things, even God's gifts, wealth and honor, or a promising career, or positions of power and influence, or accomplishments, skills that we're trying to hone, relationships, family, all of those things are good gifts, blessings from God, but they are not God's themselves. They're stewardships entrusted to us by God to be enjoyed, to be appreciated, and to be used in His service and for His glory. If we allow those things to become the main thing, they can crowd out or replace God as the source of life. So here's the point here. The throne of your life is not a coliseum with room for thousands. It's not a couch with room for three or four. It's not a love seat with room for two. There's only room for one. And asking God to move over and share it with someone or something else is the definition of a divided heart. And Christ says it's not possible to serve two masters. You have to choose. So the conclusion here is do what Solomon did without the detour. Make God your first love. Only he can provide a full life in an empty world. If you haven't started a relationship with him, that can start today, beginning with a prayer. I'm going to give you a chance to do that in a moment. And for those of us that have done that, keep him your first love. Run with endurance. Remove and replace the things that weigh you down and trip you up. Replace them with the provisions that he's given us to draw us closer to him. His, his word, the Bible, that's where we learn about him. Open communication with him through prayer. Community with other Christians. Get in a life group. Have people involved in your life. Solomon was accountable to no one. It didn't turn out well. And keep him the first love. Maybe you're here today and you're discouraged. Maybe you think I'm talking to someone else. Maybe you started out well but you just saw the sign for Pennsylvania and you're headed for Dayton. Maybe you've careened off the road and you're in the ditch. And you're thinking, this is for someone else, not me. You may think it's over for me. God's done with me. You know what? I've been there. I know that voice that says, give up, quit. God is done with you. How can you even call yourself a Christian when you've done those things? Just quit. Let me just say, that's the devil's advice. The devil will always say, give up, quit. You might as well just lay down on the side of the road. You're done. God will never say that. Read the scripture. Read Luke 15. Look at the parable of the prodigal son. The father in that story who represents God is watching for his son who's gone astray, waiting to see when he repents and turns around and comes back so he can run out to meet him and embrace him and welcome him back to the family. God will always forgive. God will always welcome back. If you are laying in the ditch, you don't need to stay there. He's reaching his hand out to you, waiting for you to take hold of it, to lift you out of the ditch and get you back on the race. That same Luke chapter 15 passage says, there's, there's rejoicing in heaven 
when somebody who's going the wrong way repents. That's the way God is. That's his voice. So if you've gotten off course, you don't need to stay there. Get back on. The past is the past. What matters now is just this moment and where you go from here. Paul says, I forget what lies behind and I press forward to what lies ahead. I'm running with endurance towards the goal of Christ. The time to walk with God is now, not later. He's the only one that ultimately satisfies. So run well. Be all in and run well. And unlike the first 11 chapters, you will see fruit and meaning and purpose in this life light years beyond what you could even imagine. And treasure in heaven as well. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, and one day you'll be looking at him face to face. And he will say, well done. There's no greater meaning or purpose than that. So let's pray. If you could bow your heads just for a moment, I, I want to speak to the folks who haven't made him the main thing. If you want Christ to be the Lord of your life, if you want a life of meaning and purpose, if you have things that need to be forgiven, all it takes is a prayer. All you need to do is ask. With your own heart, in your own words, just say something along the lines of, Lord, I, I have made mistakes. I have things I'm not proud of. I know I need your forgiveness, and I ask that Christ's death on the cross would apply to me. Forgive my sins. Come into my heart. Be the Lord of my life. Lead me in a path that leads to purpose and meaning. I'm, I'm tired of chasing after wind. If you do that, God will respond. He always says yes. For those of us, Lord, who have already done that, for the ones that haven't done that, I, I just pray that you would say whatever you need to answer whatever questions people have. Let them not leave here today without making that decision. And for those of us who have, help us to run well, to lay aside the encumbrances and the sin. Thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for that you give us a life of meaning and purpose. What a privilege it is to serve you. Thank you. May we run, run well. May we focus our eyes on you until we are looking you in the face. May we hear you say, well done. I ask these things in Christ's name.